Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a real treat, writer for such hit shows as Comedy Bang Bang and Between Two Ferns, comedian with such hit groups as The Birthday Boys, and musician in such hit bands as The Sloppy Boys, (laughs) who I might add have just released their excellent third album, Paradiso. Tim Kalpakis is here. Welcome, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Now, when I talk to people who are involved in comedy, a lot of people wind up being surprised that they're also into horror. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror, if it was something you were into growing up? My horror, it's funny. It's like, I am I feel like I'm watching a decent amount of horror every year without even trying because it's just like, or there's a lot of the kitschiness of horror tends to appeal to comedy writers in the same way that there used to be so many comedy writers obsessed with James Bond for some reason, or, right. <laughs> or now, you know, a lot of comic books or something. I don't know if it's a part of the brain, but like, that's not really me. I'm not, I'm not a horror guy and I wasn't a horror kid and I don't always seek it out, but I do, I, I feel like I can't make it through October at least without right. seeing the middle of uh, whatever is the cool horror movie that's uh that just started streaming or whatever. So like, I'm not out there looking for it, but it's, it is just like around in comedy. It's weird. Yeah, it definitely is. When you are going to watch something uh, on those instances where you are looking for a horror, do you have like a preferred subgenre? Are you like, Oh, I like slashers. If I'm going to watch a horror movie or I love ghost shit. Like I'm kind of stuck. I don't like this about myself, but I do think (laughs) I'm probably, if I'm making a a choice, it now is like, is nostalgia, you know? So for if I'm bringing something up, it is like, oh man, I caught this movie on TV when I was a kid and the music freaked me out or something like that. (laughs) And, and just like gawking at the signifiers of a decade, you know, and how right. stuff like that changed. I'm, I'm way more likely to watch something that I half remember from 1989 than uh, something that just came out. You do kind of watch those at a little bit more of a remove. It's almost more of like an oddity that you're yeah. looking at than being like, oh, I'm watching this because it's going to scare me. That's not really the point of it at that. At right. That, uh, yeah. And a lot, well, a lot of the things like swap out, it's like a, a lot of movies in this genre will have plot points uh, lots of plots will follow a similar structure and then sure. there, there's it, it's like a genre that isn't against tropes you know like it it, yeah. it, it it embraces them and likes to play with them so when you think of like different character types or whatever i like seeing what the choice was in different decades and they're a lot of time they're just kind of like changing the surface and moving mm-hmm. forward it's like the fan base for horror it doesn't like want you to reinvent the wheel every time <laughs> Right. No, absolutely not. There's definitely a uh, sort of these core archetypes that transcend all of these uh, watershed moments in horror history mm-hmm. where, you know, now we have these art house movies that, you know, at the at the end of the day, there's still a lot of similarities to movies that that came before just with a different sheen on it. You know, how far back do you are you like a guy that'll watch a, a Bella Lugosi movie? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I love the classic Universal Monsters in particular. Mm-hmm. I mean, I admit that I'm a little weak in sort of the atomic age 50s kind of stuff, but you're allowed to be weak there. Yeah, right. I get I get one area that I'm allowed. <laughs> no, I'm pissed off. I am walking off this podcast. <laughs> This guy doesn't know his atomic stuff. <laughs> well, I better get this question in quick then. Mm. Um, I, one thing that I also like to ask people who are involved in comedy about horror is what you think about horror comedies. Because uh, some people are like, oh, I come to movies to get away from my real life. And so if I'm already so immersed in comedy, sometimes I want to turn that part of my brain off. And that's why I come to this sort of thing. And other people are like, oh, I like 
bringing these two interests of mine together. And so I'll, I like stuff that is a little bit more tongue in cheek and, and pokes fun at the genre. And so I'm just curious where you fall on that. I feel like I almost like need it. I, I like need a sense of humor. I like horror comedies and I feel like half the time because I'm not like don't have horror movies running in my veins. I am sort of like taking it all a little bit campy and even the good ones. Right. I'm sort of like poking the person next to me and having fun. So I think it's like a, a, a natural marriage when, when they're funny because I can't, um, <laughs> I, I can't not laugh. I don't know. Right. No, absolutely. And I mean, I think that a lot of the, uh, best horror movies that even, even if they are taking themselves seriously in the moment, they have uh, an element of fun to them and they know that like, they're kind of this it's like a goofy it's a goofy time a lot of especially yeah. a lot of those like 80 slashers and stuff yeah and i mean the, i think that it's it's also like uh, they're they're doing this they have the same kind of like build up and release like when you're watching mm. a comedy and there hasn't been a joke for a little while you know comedies tend to have tv comedies are like two jokes per page and and when you feel like there's b- going on a page without a a joke you're like where I, uh, I I need to laugh. Uh. At. Yeah, and with it feels like that way with scares, right? You're like, yeah, it's, for sure. A couple scenes. What's going on? Here? <laughs> definitely, there's definitely that same sort of feeling of waiting for the payoff and release, uh, and and needing that to happen re- uh, relatively frequently. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about the movie today that's perfect for the summer heat. The movie that puts the ah in shark. Uh, <laughs> we're talking. <laughs> we're talking about Jaws. I absolutely love this movie. So when we talked about it, you were like, I don't know if this one will even count. And in my book, this is absolutely a horror movie. I mean, scared generations out of the water. (laughs) I'm just curious what made you question that? I mean, people have a lot of fun with genres in general because they don't even really, you know, it's all about like having fun and categorizing things Mm -hmm. and and you don't have to like a movie doesn't even have to know what genre it is. But I do think that, you know, if you were to say what is Jaws, people are Mm. like, wait, it's the first blockbuster. That is the blockbuster, the invention of a Spielberg genre. And it kind of just happens to be, I think it's a horror movie for sure, but I, it happens to be a horror movie. And then it's funny to watch his career from that point forward. Cause he's still like using the wisdom of Jaws and what was his uh, duel? His duel. Like, yeah. Yeah. The pacing and stuff is still present in his work uh, that comes after, but he gets more like magical and right. um, family friendly and, and fairy tale-ish as he goes. But no, it's, it's a, it's a horror movie that I think that in 1976, you would call it a horror movie. And then, now has been put in different boxes. I definitely agree with that. And yeah, I hear people calling it all kinds of stuff. And I I agree. I I think it is a horror movie, but you're definitely right in that he sort of does use this as a stepping stone into other genres. But a lot of that stuff that he winds up using, you can still see here, even in just, I mean, we'll talk about it as it comes up, but the the moment where Brody is at the dinner table and he has that nice father-son moment and, uh, you know, just all kinds of great Spielbergisms that uh, would be very present down the road. But that is a great one. That scene right there, like, don't you think it's hard to make time for that in a movie that is, you know, it's a pretty tight movie mm-hmm. and pretty s- sparse plotting and moves along pretty fast. And the fact that you're going to take the moment for a father to be funny with his son, <laughs> then I'm like on board because now I know this guy is a real dad. And that mm-hmm. goes for, for all the characters i mean richard dreyfus in this is just so real to me and i don't doubt yeah. him uh first and i mean quint is is i can't even believe that's an actor <laughs> but in general those like humanizing moments in a lot of the horror that i don't like it's because they're not taking the time to do that right yeah they're just they're just bodies waiting to be stacked up yeah 
Yeah, they're stab targets just waiting for it. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely not the case in this, um, which is, is definitely something that I really appreciate about, it, appreciate about it as well. Jaws was released in 1975, directed by a then-novice Steven Spielberg and based on a novel written by Peter Benchley, who also wrote the first draft script, which wound up being redone by Carl Gottlieb during shooting. Richard D. Zanuck and David Brown, who were the ones who produced the movie, uh, came across the book organically because Brown was married to Helen Gurley Brown, who was at the time the editor for Cosmo. And so he was just flipping through it. It was in like the book section. And uh, it literally, the small, like little description of it ended with, might make a good movie. (laughs) (laughs) Just that simple. He was like, oh, I guess they're right. That kind of thing almost bothers me when you're like, it's that. I, I just think I heard a thing that, that um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, when he was, like, the way he came up with Hamilton was like, oh, he had just done In the Heights, and then he was going, he was on a flight, and he wanted to buy a book for the flight, and he bought the Hamilton biography and was, like, right. on page, like, four, was like, this could be a good musical. And I feel, <laughs> it's so funny that a movie producer, it's not like he had to search his soul. It's like, well, my wife runs Cosmo, yeah. so I'm reading <laughs> Cosmo. And then the the review that I read tells me that it would make a good movie. This guy didn't have to yeah. do his job at all. Literally falls in his lap. But uh, yeah, it, it's so funny. And, and he wound up reading, both producers read the book over the course of a single night and agreed the next morning that it was the most exciting thing that they had ever read. That's a quote from them. Damn. And they purchased the film rights in 1973 before the book was even actually published um, for approximately uh, 175000 which is just under a million dollars today. And I I thought one thing that was really funny was that Brown said that if they had read the book a second time, they would have been like, there's no way we're making this movie. This will be so difficult to get the shots on and just executing it would be such a challenge. But luckily for us, they didn't read it twice. (laughs) So they hired uh, Dick Richards, actually, to direct it was uh, the first director after he debuted with the Culpepper Cattle Affair the previous year, which I didn't believe was a real name. <laughs> I still don't. I, think that's a, I gotta correct that on Wikipedia. Yeah, but they they fired him because Dick Richards wouldn't stop calling the shark a whale, which is just like the funniest thing to me. Like, how do you fuck that up so bad that you get fired? But it, yeah, I, I just thought that was so funny and like you pointed out, so many things just kind of lined up correctly for this movie mm-hmm. to turn out the way it did because that guy was hired. They were in pre-production, and if he didn't fuck that up, then they would never have fired him. Spielberg would never have done this, and wow. he was uh, already directing Sugarland uh, Sugarland Express for uh, Zanuck and Brown when he noticed the book in their office, and he read it himself, and again, he was just like, oh, this is so fascinating. He also compared it to Duel in particular, just like the idea of these leviathans targeting your everyday people, and this is directly referenced in the shark's death roar, which is kind of a funny idea to me. <laughs> but uh, that's repurposed audio from the truck being destroyed, which I thought was pretty oh, cool. Cool, yeah. it's like a like putting like a Wilhelm scream in there or something. <laughs> exactly, yeah, that's his version is the Wilhelm uh, truck explosion, truck, truck death. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so like I said, the first draft of this script was done by Peter Benchley, which partially was they, it was because they were concerned that the script wouldn't be done in time for the looming writer strike, and he wasn't unionized, so kind of lame on their part there. But they wound up being happy with the overall outline of the story that he had done and the work that he had done streamlining the book. But uh, since he was a writer, 
he like a, a novel writer he was having a hard time communicating characterization like through the screen mm. instead of just being like here you can look into their minds here's what they're thinking and, and how they're feeling and everything and so they took out some of the subplots like hooper originally uh, has an affair with mrs brody in the book <laughs> which uh that would have been a wholly different movie wow the, they were like the characters are just not likable enough right now and so they hired uh, Howard Sackler to do an uncredited rewrite which added Brody's fear of water which I want to talk about this I want to see what you think about this sort of mini arc that they've installed I, I think in it's Brody. pretty thin I made it yeah. you know it's one of those things that maybe when I was younger I was like isn't that ironic? The guy who's afraid of water is the one who kills the shark at the end. But watching it this time, I'm like, they kind of just like mention it, you know? Yeah. They're just like, oh, yeah, he's afraid. That's why we, uh, we look at the – if it's not an island, if you look at it from the land. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but it, it still wasn't done, though, because Spielberg wanted to add some of that humor and some of those human touches to avoid making it just a, what he called a dark sea hunt. And so – what he did was he recruited uh, Carl Gottlieb, who was a comedy writer and an actor, and he sent him a script and he said, what would you change and is there a role that you would want to play if you were in it? And Gottlieb sent back three pages of notes and he said that he wanted to play Meadows, which is um, the editor of the newspaper, who we see telling the mayor that he's going to buy uh, bury the bounty. Ah. So that's uh, that's actually one of the writers. And on set, he w- like he was hired for a one-week dialogue polish, is what he says. But on set, he wound up becoming the primary writer because, I mean, there was just so much going on. But they had so many rewrites that meant the script was basically finished like the night before. They would just like have dinner, sit around, and be like, all right, what do we think is going to happen in the movie next, fellas? <laughs> <laughs> and one thing I thought was interesting is that a lot of the dialogue comes from the actors' improvisations during these meals. And even on set, there was some light improvisation. And I think that that's really interesting because since so much of this dialogue does feel real, the idea of not of them kind of coming in and bringing their own self to the role in the writer's room like that, I think definitely is part of what contributed to that feeling of authenticity uh, in the roles. Yeah, I can I can feel it. And I, I feel like um, Hooper is a character that you don't just write that way in a, in a screenplay sitting in an office in Los Angeles. I think that it's like clearly a great actor sinking his teeth into something, but it makes sense that a writer would be there on set helping him like on the spot. Yeah, and the reason reason that they had to do these onset rewrites is that Jaws was the first major movie to be shot on the ocean, primarily on location in Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, which meant that they were dramatically underprepared for the difficulties that came along with it. Things were constantly breaking down, needing repair. They were having a hard time getting the shots, and things went way over budget, going from $4 million to $9 million, and over 100 days past schedule leading to crew members giving it the nickname Flaws, which is a nice nice little uh, burn on them there. But How is it that movies get to just go 100 days long or double their budget? Like, I can't imagine anything that I've ever worked on is just like, oh, we ran out of money, we have to stop. Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine just, like, making a phone call? Or, like, does that money just keep flowing and they just keep spending and it's just after the fact they realize that they doubled the budget? It's it's really crazy. And Spielberg, he, he said that he was like, there was, he was sure that he was never going to work again, you know, yeah. when he's like 75 days past schedule and he's like, oh, we're still not done. We're going to need another month here, fellas. <laughs> That's bizarre. And Spielberg, he blamed his perfectionism and inexperience for a lot of the issues, saying uh, 
uh, starting from the word go and deciding to use the full shot, full size sharks in the ocean. He was like, I was naive about the ocean. Basically. I was pretty naive about mother nature and the hubris of a filmmaker <laughs> who thinks he can conquer the elements. <laughs> I'm seeing some parallels between you know, the fight of uh, mm. man versus nature in the film. Indeed. Maybe popped up Indeed. on set. Yes. <laughs> Hey, life imitates art, as they say. And he, yeah, he was like, "Oh, uh, I, I could have shot the movie in a tank or in a protected lake or somewhere, but it wouldn't have looked the same." And Gottlieb said, "There was nothing to do except make the movie." And so everyone just kept working. They were sunburnt to hell, windblown, covered in salt. And in addition to simply being unpredictable in terms of weather, shooting at sea led to other delays, including unwanted sailboats in frame. Gottlieb nearly getting decapitated by a boat's propellers. Dreyfus getting stuck in the shark cage. <laughs> the actors getting seasick constantly. Robert Shaw having to fly to Canada whenever he could because he was in tax trouble with the IRS. He was also a <laughs> notorious alcoholic, so he was drunk on set all the time and had a huge grudge against Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, just one thing after another. And Spielberg, he basically estimated that during the 12-hour daily work schedule... On average, only four hours were actually spent filming because they were just spending so much time wrangling everything together. Editor uh, Verna Fields rarely had material to work with during principal photography because he, Spielberg said that they shot five scenes in a good day, three in an average day, and none on a bad day. It, things, I mean, literally anything that could go wrong would go wrong. At one point, the orca was genuinely, like, sinking. It just started to implode on itself. <laughs> and Spielberg, he started, like, yelling for the safety boats to rescue the actors. But one of the sound guys, like, he already had the, like, water up to his knees. And he said, fuck the actors, save the sound department. <laughs> and, like, just the film camera went completely underwater. They were like, oh, shit, that's a whole day of shooting gone. They actually were able to save it because they were like, oh, wait, developing solution is just saline. Uh, so they wound up being able to fly it to a uh, to a film lab and uh, and save it. But, yeah. but all of those things had less impact on the budget and the shooting schedule than the three constantly malfunctioning mechanical sharks. These things are just a menace they were named bruce after spielberg's lawyer uh, bruce raymer but it's so funny that again it's it's like that coincidence that wound up leading to what we got being so great because like these things basically not being able to function is what led spielberg to being like all right we're just gonna go hitchcock style and not really show the shark at all which not exactly a hot take here to say that that is part of what makes this movie so interesting and great is that suspense of not really seeing the shark. I really um, wonder what that. Yeah, it, it, it's like this is sort of uh, people talk a lot about this movie being like, oh, it's what you <laughs> the fear of the unknown can be sometimes, yeah. you, and and the way that they parse that out. But picturing this movie with tons of Bruce shots, just like <laughs> uh, just lots of swimming is so weird because yeah. then at the end like the, you know the payoff in, in the boat at the end if we've been seeing the shark on screen in Who its cares? entirety for the whole movie <laughs> what would we, by then you're just like okay this is just like a character like everybody else yeah exactly and i mean originally the film's producers wanted to actually train a great white shark to do this role <laughs> which is <laughs> that is cool that i, I <laughs> I'm sure that's easy to do. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, this, somebody uh, somebody who's not working with a lot of sharks dreamed that one up. But uh, 
they wound up building these three. Inclu- so one was a sea sled shark, which is a full body prop that had the belly cut out. And it was towed with a 300 foot line and took 40 people to operate it. And then they had two platform sharks, one that moved from uh, left to right and vice versa with just the sides kind of cut out. And I mean, Bruce is he looks great. I mean, he doesn't look great in motion because he's kind of jank looking. But as a design, the, the design is absolutely incredible. Joe Alves it just did such a great job of making him just this picture of menace. Like, he's yeah, so time. scary looking. And and it is a, definitely a case of, like, it being practical and, like, the texture on Bruce. Because, you know, we're all everyone's always mm-hmm. kind of, like, bagging on uh, digital effects. But it is. It, in this case, it's like he feels like a part of their world and... and if it had been some kind of computery animated version of a shark, which can be, there's great movies like that, but it, it wouldn't really work for this one if we saw it, if we saw him and he was just like this overly cartoonish weirdo. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I mean, just giving them something to react to in the world definitely helps out in terms of, again, bringing that sort of sense of authenticity that they're working so hard to build by having these roles be so entwined with uh, the actual actors. But, I mean, in terms of how these sharks were fucking up, basically, they started messing up immediately when they got there. They weren't... they. They, when they tested it, they didn't use salt water, and so the density was all messed up, and so they sank immediately as soon as they put them in the water. <laughs> and so they did that, and then they were just malfunctioning all the time because of the weather, pneumatic hoses taking on water, frames fracturing due to uh, the water resistance, corroding skin, and electrolysis. And, I mean, the skin itself, the it was like this neoprene foam just started soaking up liquid. So if they left it in the water too long, the sharks would just start to balloon up and bloat and like get caught on seaweed and stuff. The one thing you would think if I were building a fake shark for a movie, maybe I think it being water resistant would be where I would (laughs) (laughs) The one thing I would get right. Yeah, I mean, these little things that started domino. Yeah, so basically Spielberg was like, we just can't do this. We just can't do this (laughs) anymore. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, he said, we're just not going to showcase the shark explicitly. We're going to use John Williams's iconic score. It's just absolutely incredible to indicate its appearance. And as a musician, I'm curious if the sh- if the score for this is something that really makes it stick out to you. Big time. I, I was thinking when I rewatched it, just that I can't even... It's hard to picture that music being new, you know, it's like it's mm-hmm. ever... Pr- we grew up when it already <laughs> existed, and when you talk about movie music, it's like such the cliche theme to even point out. So I was watching that. And when, when you f- hear the first like, bum, bum, I was like, I- imagine being in a movie theater and hearing that for the first time. I can't <laughs> even really, I can't even really uh, imagine that someone that ever, that ever didn't exist. Even kids just by cultural osmosis, like, even if you haven't seen Jaws, you know, the Jaws theme. Yeah. You just hear kids on the beach being like, dun, 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 dun. Uh, <laughs> It's crazy that a guy sat and he was like drawing little <laughs> musical notes on a staff being like, hmm, dun, dun, that'll be good. <laughs> okay, now let's do this a few more times, see what we're cooking I think he with got here. lazy and he's like, you know what, I'm just going to keep looping these dun, dun. <laughs> John, come on, man, we're come on to you. <laughs> At the end of the day, though, there's only four minutes of shark footage. Which is, I mean, crazy to me. Everyone talks about how there's like 13 minutes of T-Rex footage in the in Jurassic Park, but same thing here, and and only four this time. So pretty crazy. 13 minutes of, of uh, T-Rex. Huh? Damn, I love that T-Rex too. That is a very. Oh yeah. 
I same kind of a genre where that's like a big old summer family type of movie, but that's scary. But when the T Rex face smashes down on the SUV and the glass oh, is pushed down on the kids, like I was, I'm still scared thinking about that. <laughs> it's so good. What a great movie. That Spielberg guy, he's he, he's got something. He, he's not bad. I'll, <laughs> you know, I don't have a lot of bad things to say about him. No, it's true. And uh, so Zanuck and Brown, when they started the casting phase of this, they asked Spielberg to cast known actors. But Spielberg, uh, he didn't really want to do it with any huge stars because he was like, you want this story because it's so intertwined with the idea of this, like every man being pursued by this Leviathan. You don't want a star who's going to bring the sort of baggage and memories that people already have for them to, to this movie. You know, he wanted the superstar to be the shark. He said, I feel that way, honestly, with every movie. I don't like celebrities, you know, with with the exception of maybe a, a small handful of character actors or comedians who are reliably funny. I would love to, every time I see a movie, be learning faces for the first time. It, it really does make it so much easier to invest in the world. Yeah. I remember, you know, seeing, um, I think it was maybe two years ago now, The Rider was uh, nominated for some Academy Award. And, like, mm-hmm. it was it was this story of this kid. And what they did was they literally were just like, all right, put the whole family, like, cast the whole family in the movie. And when I found that out afterward, I was like, holy shit, like, no wonder it felt so real and, yeah. like, the emotions were so impactful and everything. I, you know, I, there is a lot of baggage that comes along with celebrities and, you know, sort of falling into these action tropes and stuff that uh, can negatively impact a movie. Celebrities and even just like hot actor types. I like, I'm Mm. so tired of looking at attractive people in every (laughs) role. You know, like I get it if you have to have a romantic lead, but when I'm watching a movie that has all like good looking people in it, I'm, I, I can never feel for them because I'm always like, well, why don't you just like stop this <laughs> plot and go become an actor in Hollywood? <laughs> like, go, go become a model. You know, wh- like, how am I supposed to feel bad for George Clooney in a movie? <laughs> right. Absolutely. We're, so basically, uh, other casting options that were on the table were uh, for Roy Scheider's character for, of uh, Officer Brody, Chief Brody, was Robert Duvall, who passed on the role because he wanted to play Quint instead of Brody, Uh and Charlton Heston, who, this is kind of where that comes into play, is that Spielberg decided he had too much, quote, save the day energy, and that there wasn't going to be that sort of like, is he going to make it out at the end of this, that really comes along with Roy Scheider, and apparently Heston hated Spielberg forever for this. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, later down the road, Spielberg wanted to cast him in something, and Heston was like, I am never working with Spielberg. <laughs> no, that's so. dumb. Uh, Heston's dumb. Because it's, everything that Spielberg made after <laughs> was also hit. So it's like, oh, good, good for you. You missed out on hundreds of millions of dollars. I got to say, though, Duvall, that one burned. I would have liked Duvall. I, I think uh, Scheider is good and everything, but uh, ooh, Robert Duvall in that yeah. role. That would have been that would have been uh, very interesting for sure. And, and he want he wanted to be. Did you say he wanted to be Quint? Yeah, he wanted to be Quint. Mm. He's kind of uh, too, too young, maybe. That's exactly what Spielberg said. Oh. That's exactly. See, what I'm just like Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> he and I are on the same page about that, at least. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, for John Voight, for Hooper and Jeff Bridges were also considered. Jeff but Bridges, what, wow. what, yeah, that would have been really interesting as well, sort of, especially since he is that younger character. But George Lucas actually was the one who suggested Richard Dreyfus uh, after directing him in American Graffiti. So it was 
down to the last second, though, because nine days before the start of production, neither Quint nor Hooper had actually been cast yet. So, oh my god, really uh, cutting it down to the wire. <laughs> How funny that Richard Dreyfus would be like American Graffiti is only a year or two before this, right? Right, yeah, yeah. So that he went so quickly from playing a high school senior trying to decide whether or not he's going to go to college to then being this scientist guy. And uh, I think he's maybe like 26, 27. Uh, and, but it's funny to be, he can he can pull both off, but him as yeah. a high schooler was, uh, was kind of a, was a stretch. Yeah, that hey, that beard's doing a lot of work in Jaws. It's doing some he- heavy lifting. <laughs> But once the movie was actually made, they finally did it. Universal was like, we already spent a fortune on this thing. We might as well go all in. And they spent an unprecedented $1.8 million on marketing this movie with 70,000 or excuse me, 700,000 going to TV commercials. They gave it a a huge release at the time. Uh, Again, unprecedented Uh, over 450 screens. And they were just like pumping out merch and all kinds of stuff and really paid off in spades for them. But really, it paid off in dollars, 470 million of them, to be specific. That's a lot. Yeah, made it the highest grossing movie uh, ever at the time. And as you said, it really sort of led to the creation of the blockbuster format, which is this sort of high concept, heavily advertised movie with action adventure elements to it that can be released in thousands of theaters at the same time. Because previously, this sort of like saturation booking was uh, primarily done for Grindhouse and B-movies to avoid the the issue of like negative word of mouth. So they were like, all right, just spread it out. But between this and then repeating it in 1977 with Star Wars, I mean, it just really created this this unique format and to say that it's a, it was a game changer would be putting it incredibly mildly yeah it's it's funny to think of it um, to pair it up with star wars because you see it in the the marketing campaigns the the iconography and the music and and the summer blockbuster vibe but also they are such different movies that mm-hmm. it, it's kind of amazing you know star wars is good obviously and it, it but it had to you know lucas had to build a whole fantasy world with wacky names and wacky aliens to draw you in so i think it's it's pretty cool to also be to pull it off with just like hey we're in martha's vineyard on a boat (laughs) and and it feels just as exotic yeah i mean what the back half of this movie is literally just like three guys yeah like sitting around on a boat yep i I think it's really remarkable that he was able to do that so he's good (laughs) these guys are good and critical reception and audience reception were both spectacular with best little horror house villain Roger Ebert giving it a, a perfect four stars and calling it sensationally effective. How did he become your villain? You guys had a, a spat? He just, he hates genre movies. And so he, especially with John Carpenter, uh, he has a lot of negative things to say. And mm. so he's he's a real negative Nancy, that, uh, that Roger Ebert. Mm. R.I.P. though. <laughs> <laughs> you, you won in the end. He passed away and you live on. Yeah, who's laughing now, Roger? <laughs> It was nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, although it did lose to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And Spielberg was he was very pissy about not being nominated for Best Director. And uh, it did wind up winning Best Editing for Verna Fields, though, as well as Best Sound and Best Original Dramatic Score. Have you seen that video on YouTube of him not getting the nomination? Yes. It's... Oh. it's Boy, it's yeah, so great. I feel bad. But, I feel uh, I feel bad, but he was he was. It's so that is cocky. such a douchey thing to do. Be like, <laughs> yeah. hey, let's film us. It's so obvious. <laughs> I just love his hangers on uh, 
Eva Anderson showed me that video and we watched a lot in the comedy bang bang writers room because the douchey guys he surrounded himself with. I love just like that one guy who's like, hey, who do they think directed the picture? The shark? Come on. And you're like, even Steven, who who is like this cool, smart nerd, even he fell into the trappings of being in L.A. and surrounding himself with a bunch of dumb actor types. Yeah, it's it's a really funny video. I'll, I'll include it in the supplementary material for this episode Great. for uh, the people out there. And the movie didn't just create ripples throughout the movie industry in terms of creating blockbusters, but also in terms of general society. Similar to how people started getting paranoid about getting stabbed in the shower after Psycho, Jaws freaked people out real bad regarding the ocean. I mean, there was significantly reduced beach attendance in 1975, as well as more reported shark sightings. So they're basically all attributed to Jaws. And uh, I mean, it's literally it's called the Jaws effect. It's another one of those things where it's kind of hard to imagine going to the beach and someone not being like, oh, there could be like sharks out there. Didn't you see Jaws? Like, I can't think of of a pre Jaws world because like sharks are just real they're real (laughs) and they are around and they do kill people. So it's kind of funny that we even needed a book and a hit movie to to point that out to people. (laughs) They're like, Oh yeah, that's right. Those things. But, and it's weird how things like will come into stock, you know, like how, uh, dinosaurs were like, we already, already kind of had dino fever in America in the eighties, like for stuff, but then Jurassic park shot it into the stratosphere. But, But like, that's because like they did exist and then you need you need to put it in a movie for people to like get excited about it. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah, it's not like I mean at the end of the day people could have just been like, "Oh, I'm at an aquarium. Look, a shark." Right. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> not yeah. not something you could do with a dinosaur. But yeah. this I mean inspired a ton of like fishing shark shark fishing tournaments and stuff. Benchley is on the record as saying that he would not have written the original novel if he had known what sharks are really like in the wild, which is that there are definitely man-eaters, but the significant majority of them avoid humans. And conservation groups have bemoaned the fact that the film has made it considerably harder to convince the public that sharks should be protected. But I'm like, hey, all of this is just praise for this movie because that just is talking about how effective it is. It's how well it worked that people wanted to just go out and kill sharks. Yeah. that It's weird to, to feel, to have a piece in that, that have the guilt did you ever see the documentary The Cove? No. Oh wait, that's the dolphin. The one. dolphin. Uh, dolphin one. Fit. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's it's about yeah dolphin poaching, but it has this like amazing character where and it's a documentary, so it's real. Where it's like the guy who feels so bad about dolphin poaching being a thing is the guy who was the animal trainer on the set of Flipper, because yeah. like uh, he he like popularized the dolphin and then he harmed their existence. Uh, so eventually, uh, th- that's got to be so weird. You just like you're just trying to write a book, you know? You're just, <laughs> yeah. You're just trying to make. It's his job, and he's trying to make money, and he picked a thing to write about. Then he ended up getting them all slaughtered. It it is fascinating to see, like, I mean, it it, it would have been very easy for this movie not to take off the way that it did. And it's just just so hard to, like we said, to imagine that world where this wasn't a huge success and people don't talk about sharks the way that they do because of Jaws. But Jaws basically set the template for dozens of horror movies to come, either by them being Jaws in a place besides the ocean or... Or Jaws with an animal besides a shark. 
And this is including, as we mentioned in our previous episode that you could listen to right now, the script for Alien, pitched as Jaws in Space. So there you go. And some of the movies that fall more on the ripoff side of, of the spectrum include Orca, Grizzly, Mako the Jaws of Death, Barracuda, Alligator, and Piranha, directed by Joe Dante, which Spielberg himself declared the best of the Jaws ripoffs. I'm going to disagree with Spielberg himself here. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to say that Orca is the best of those Jaws ripoffs. Ooh, I got to watch Orca. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. And uh, it does have that tie as, like, the boat is named the Orca because the killer whale is one of the shark's only natural predators. And uh, they they do a lot of interesting stuff with Orca that I think makes it a, a pretty okay movie in terms of uh, Jaws ripoffs. Yeah. So. Uh, several non-U.S. ripoffs were even more deliberate, though, including Great White from Italy that was pulled from theaters in the U.S. because uh, they wound up just suing them for plagiarism. That was home- how much they literally ripped from it. Um, that said, Cruel Jaws, directed by Bruno Mattei under a pseudonym, uses a bunch of footage from Jaws, Great White, and Deep Blood, as well as score from Star Wars. So if you're looking for the ultimate ripoff, look no further than Jaws 5, Cruel Jaws. Cruel. <laughs> <laughs> cool. We're, we're going to start, like, moving into the actual plot, but it's just so crazy how much went wrong in yeah. the, like, formulation of this movie and that it all wound up leading to, I mean, what is cl- classically on every top hundred movies you must see before you die, yada, yada, yada. Like, I mean, it's a, it's a beloved movie, and it would have been so easy for one of these issues to knock it down. And uh, I just think it's really impressive that it didn't. I so. wonder the. I think that that's true, and I do think it is amazing that they made this movie with all the things they're up against. But I also wonder if once that started being the tale of Jaws, that that it was like this troubled movie where things went wrong, and it still was a big hit. Then I bet it's like if you're a magazine writer or a film historian or something, mm. you kind of like like finding these new thi- like that's what you're looking for. So if I had worked yeah. on Jaws and I were being interviewed, I would probably be just racking my brain for like, oh yeah, and also uh, <laughs> lunch was late one day. Uh, what a mess! <laughs> but it, but like you know you start to tell. Uh, I feel myself just when I'm like you know telling an old story and I'm like you start hammering a narrative that already exists. It's like. Movies are these big, bloated, giant projects that like any movie could go off of the rails and half of them do that. I I really wonder, like, where was the pass off and what year did people start being aware of like the Bruce's kept breaking if they hid that for a little while? And then after it's a monster hit, then they start talking about it. Yeah, I don't know. That is that is interesting. It definitely does seem like the kind of thing that people would seize on. And it helps it helps if it fits with the movie that it is a movie about these unlikely dudes going out on a boat to try to uh, fight the shark. And like we're, we're saying Steven's own uh, man versus nature thing. I, I feel like at some point they kind of become aware of like, let's full on brand this movie as the problem shoot. <laughs> and uh, it worked. All right. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to the show. Ooh, this is the ghost of George and it's getting to be the spooky season. However you're getting your scares in, they go better with Tuckins, the all-in-one inside-out s'more. Each Tuckin has crunchy handmade graham cracker covered in decadent chocolate, all tucked inside a fluffy marshmallow. And the best part is, because they're self-contained, you can roast them anywhere. Around a fire pit while you're telling ghost stories, or even just over the stove for a sweet movie treat alternative to popcorn. Uh, they also come in multiple flavors, and while you can't go wrong with classic, I gotta say that I'm a cookies and cream guy personally. 
Plus, it's a local company owned by two previous guests on this very show. And since they like the show so much, they're giving listeners a 15% discount if you use the offer code BEST15 at tuckins.com. That's BEST15 for 15% off. So don't wind up with a bag of stale mallows in the back of your pantry. Check out Tuckins today. And now, back to the show. There's a great opening scene here where it's the tail end of a beach party at dusk on Amity Island and some drunk partygoers kind of stumble away where one passes out in the sand while uh, the other one, Chrissy Watkins, goes skinny dipping in the ocean. And she's out there, casual as you like, and this placid scene is just like shattered by her getting dragged under. And I love the way that they handle this because she just kind of like dips under the first time and yep. she's like what the fuck was that? Yeah. <laughs> like, and we don't know, and she doesn't know, and it just turns so violent so quickly, and she's screaming out there, and the dude's, like, passed out, like, I'll be in the water in a second. Like, <laughs> What do you think that first, that first little pull on her, it's funny because it plays so well as a viewer to be like, oh, she just got pulled a little bit, and then again, what is this? But to yeah. her, those are <laughs> shark teeth on her legs, right? <laughs> like, yeah. I wonder if sharks can, can do they just, is it possible just a little, just nibble? N- little nibble on the toe and it doesn't hurt, but you're like, mm, something's strange. <laughs> a giant, giant beast. Is, that is also funny. Then when you see how big the shark is later, that yeah. huge, huge <laughs> dinosaur is under the water there being like, Oop, just a little piece. <laughs> And she's like, wow, that's some really painful seaweed. <laughs> yeah. Man, the seaweed in this town. <laughs> but yeah, it, she gets pulled under, and uh, it's a great tone setter. And so the sun rises on another day in Amity. And uh, just a really great opening scene. Yeah. And that um, I love seeing them on the beach, that kind of beach party at the beginning, which is probably the reference point for Wet Hot American Summer, starting with like a nighttime campfire vibe. But right. that uh, so much of this movie is about it being a, a tourist town, you know, and 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 the plot hinges on and them clashing with the mayor is all about it being summer in a fun place. So it is mm-hmm. cool to start by seeing a campfire that you would like to hang around and have a good summer at and not be killed, not get eaten at. Yeah, exactly. You see sort of what could be. Yeah. And then they pull that away from you. Not me. See, I want two hours of just the bonfire. Everybody, <laughs> everybody's having fun. <laughs> yeah. that uh, Not a lot of conflict in that movie, but not it does still sound like a good time. <laughs> so the, the next morning, we meet Police Chief Brody and his family new to the island. Brody's dog in the movie. That was actually a Spielberg's dog, Elmer. Yeah. So there you go. And he gets a call bringing him to where Chrissy's partial remains are found. And at the little like bumbling sidekick cop does a great job of sort of being like oh shit like i'm not used to this sort of carnage here and the prop arm that they were using uh looked too fake and so they literally like just buried a crew member in the sand with the arm sticking up and it's like grody looking wow. with crabs that's crawling a live all person over holding yeah the- oh, that makes sense because that does look good it's gross as hell for sure too and the medical examiner rules it a shark attack. And I also, similar to sort of seeing this, I like uh, the beach party and seeing what could be, it's kind of nice to see like a bit of the island prepping for this 4th of July weekend. And it's, there's all this hustle and bustle and everyone's moving around to get ready for it. It sort of gives you a, a nice like picture of the island and, and uh, who these people are. And Brody is running to get materials for the signs for closing the beach. But uh, Mayor Larry Vaughn, who's the owner of the raddest suit in existence, with the little anchors on it. it. He overrules him, basically, which, I mean, over July 4th weekend, I watched all five Jaws movies, including Cruel Jaws. (laughs) And... (laughs) 
it was my first time seeing it in a couple years. And I mean, this is also, I'm sure, you know, hundreds of people have made this comparison as well. But in the time of COVID, crazy, it's incredibly applicable. This idea of sacrificing the the people to keep the economy running here. I really could not believe how how much that applied because yeah it's like i thought i mean at the beginning of covid it's uh, we all like privately had that thought and then i did see some articles about that and and comparing uh, trump to a mayor that wanted to open the beaches and stuff like that and but then watching it you you really it's not just like novel like hey that's like this but it's like we now know both sides we're we're now in a situation where you know the the right choice to do is to side with uh, safety. But at the same time, I do get it, like, you know, living in a place that's all shut down right now. And the idea of, of a little island that makes all of their money over this weekend, I do get the struggle and I do feel for them. And I can like kind of put a face to small business owners and being like, yeah. oof, this is... Uh, it's so fragile. Yeah. The seasonality of their town is is so contingent on even just this one weekend i mean never mind the whole summer but like they're like if we don't have fourth of july weekend we're we're screwed and that's how it works in in those towns is they really you can make like half your money for the year in one four-day weekend and it's 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 so impressive that this movie would draw us into you know that relationship but then also be on the right side of it and and that the mayor is He's not cartoonishly evil. Uh, I get, I get him, but I also just like love his vibe that he's like, you don't understand yeah. the way that things go around here, and that he is a businessman. So you feel it makes the movie even better. Yeah, exactly. The the fact that Brody is new to town, and you know the mayor like points out like, oh, we've never had trouble with sharks around here before. There's this element of Brody not wanting to rock the boat in this town that he's just arrived at yeah. and clearly the mayor has a lot of pull here he, he manages to sort of strong arm the coroner away from saying that it was a shark attack and he says now that it's a boating accident and Brody just accepts this he's not happy about it but he's like you know I, I don't want to shake things up it's possible I guess that this was a boating accident I'm not from here I don't know what either one of these things really looks like so and the boating accident is exactly the boating accident is just like us saying eh, this virus is like the flu you know we've had yeah. we, there could be other things there's a lot of other things out there and and willfully obscuring it you know the next day the beach is full and we get this really cool bit of tension building that i really like here where they sort of focus in on several different groups of people where the same way that brody is like who who's next we're also like oh, they want us to focus on this family. Oh, wait, no, we're switching over to these kids. Like yeah. The idea of it being able to be anyone who could get pulled under at any second just skyrockets that tension. I love scenes like that. Uh, they make me picture the script and wonder what everybody's called because you're meeting these people and you're just getting a little bit of chatter from them and not not you don't know their character names, but it's like, oh, that guy you know has a swim cap on, on and this guy <laughs> has that floaty and and we're meeting all of them but they're not like character characters it's they're all mm -hmm. they're all just uh kind of treated like props it's funny you do get these little tastes of them and that's again sort of the thing that helps them feel a little bit more well-rounded they don't feel like they're just a floating piece of bait for the shark like that you get these conversations that they're in the middle of already it makes them feel like they are real people and at the end of the day the one who does get attacked is young boy alex kittner 
And again, there's just this brutality to it. It's like a fountain of blood that like rises up yeah. from the spot where he was. And you get the classic, the Spielberg special, the forward tracking, zoom out, functioning as a reverse of the trombone shot invented by Ermin Roberts for the disorientation shots in Vertigo, which I thought was interesting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so wait, the tr- trombone goes goes the other way? Yeah, so it's uh, backwards tracking and zooming in to create that, like, whoa feeling it's in Vertigo. So funny just how, how – um, that's cool in Vertigo, and then this shot in uh, Jaws is so cool. But it is just so funny how that launched just a million student films. <laughs> and it's like it's student films that have no cinematography ideas otherwise and no storyboarding, <laughs> no nothing, but have multiple, like, stretch film shots in them. Right. You guys rack that focus, dolly in, zoom out. You got to do it. Hell yeah. I mean, how are you not going to? They're the next Jaws, don't you know? Yes. And they, they every one of those films took off and was a blockbuster. <laughs> and we also get to see, she has a really small role, but uh, Mrs. Kittner searching for Alex in this moment. Uh, she just does such, such a great job. And she puts a bounty on the shark. Which this is where, like I said, the mayor tries to bury it, and uh, we see the news editor being like, "Don't worry, I'll put it in the back uh, near near the feed or the bait ads or whatever." And basically, they hold this press conference where Brody says that he's going to close the beach. But again, the mayor, you feel for him because he looks like he's going along with it, and then the crowd just erupts, and they're like. 24, like, uh, this is crazy. Like, how can you shut this down? You're going to ruin us. And so he jumps in to be like, only 24 hours. And us, with the benefit of being able to look at it from the outside, we're like, that's too much. It's like, once you <laughs> let a little bit in, once you have a few people out there without masks on, yeah. spreading it as vectors, you know, again, it's it's like half measures don't work. You have to really commit to it and to taking care of this problem. And, you know, Brody's like, I didn't agree to this. People are still pissed about 24 hours, which, again, there's like, well, there's no pleasing some people. So you might as well just actually help them. And it's it's just a, another great scene. And this is where we meet Quint, which, boy, what an opening for Quint. <laughs> I mean, can you think of a better character introduction ever in a movie? No. And I'll be honest, I was reading about the alternate intro idea that they had for Quint. And I think that that one is fun too, where they were going to have him in a screening of the 1956 version of Moby Dick. And he was just going to be like laughing like hysterically at it Mm. and and, like how shitty it was and everything. And at the, at the end, all of the other viewers would have left and it would just reveal that Quint was sitting by himself in the back. And it's like, I definitely prefer what they wound up with, but even if that had made it in, I would, I still would have been like, "Oh, that's fun! Like that's a that's a cool intro for him." And they could could have just put it in as like a, a different scene. Uh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, uh, the issue is that uh, Gregory Peck, who was a partial owner of the rights to Moby Dick, uh, said that he didn't want anyone to see his performance because he felt that he was really bad in it, and so he didn't want any parts of Moby Dick playing. So that was why Spielberg had to uh, shift it up, but. The, what we got is also great. He scratches down the chalkboard and he drew a funny little goblin shark chowing on a stick figure. It's so funny <laughs> it's, to picture 
that he was drawing that before we <laughs> saw him when that meeting was happening. He was like being a little artist and doodling. It's so cute. And the, the like with the like w- huge nose on it, him being like, <laughs> "Yeah, I nailed it." Now's the time to scratch down. <laughs> but it, it's it's just great. And he gives this speech about y'all know me, know how I earn a living, and I mean. It's just great. It's what an introduction. I, I I love this character of Quint, and he offers to take care of the problem for them. He says ten thousand dollars. I'll hunt this shark. I'll kill it. I'll give you the whole kitten caboodle, and he gets promptly ignored. <laughs> so I like that. Um, it's a good example of that device working. Where I don't know what the name for this one would be, but you know, in like the hero's journey. There's mm-hmm. a call to adventure and then the refusal of the call, like main, right. Luke Skywalker is like, oh, I can't go off there just yet. <laughs> and then something else has to happen. Something worse has to happen in order to do the like crossing of the threshold and going off to adventure. So I love it's kind of the opposite here because it's it's him offering himself up for adventure. But the yeah. fact that the town says no, like we're given the answer and then the town says no. And then we, the viewer, are just waiting while Quint also is like, you'll come crawling back. <laughs> that is really interesting. It is a, it's a cool kind of subversion of that typical yeah. route that a lot of stories take. And so that it gives you that kind of excitement. When they decide that they are going to take Quint up on his offer, we, the viewer, are like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Showtime, baby. Yeah, especially after all those dramatics. We're like, oh, man, if that was what we got just for the offer, imagine what's coming. Imagine all the chalkboards he's going to scratch out on that boat. (laughs) The orca is made of chalkboards. (laughs) Just an hour of scratching, and it's a terrible movie. (laughs) But Mrs. Kittner, she put this bounty that I mentioned in the paper, and this prompts a bunch of amateur shark hunters, which is, of course, extremely dangerous. And one guy just barely escapes an attack. I love this sort of dock collapse where he's like swimming back and it's it's chasing after him. And you're like, eh, they warned you, you shouldn't have gone in. I could do a whole movie of the wacky guys rushing to get the bounty to catch the shark. You know, just it is that's so fun. Like it's a mad, mad, mad world rat race type of thing of like, oh, all every bozo on the island is going to try to catch a shark. It's so oh, fun. that's a that's a great idea, mm-hmm. but. Uh, yeah, you should. <laughs> um, I'll cut that part out. No one, uh, no one will take it. <laughs> but then oceanographer Matt Hooper comes, and uh, this is, of course, Richard Dreyfus, and he, like we said, he's just so good in this moment where he shows up and he's greeted by this scene of like anarchy as these guys are launching out and they're churning, they're chumming the waters literally and figuratively. And he just like chuckles to himself and he's like, ah, they're all going to die. Yeah. <laughs> he's so weird. Dreyfus is just like the epitome of what a character actor should be doing where it's like he, all of his choices are bizarre. And it's so <laughs> cool that he can walk this line where like he's a scientist and he's right, but he is also kind of like delighted by the town's stupidity. So like, he doesn't come he in. He definitely feels better than them. Yes, he but he and he know he know he's like condescending to them. But at the same time, yeah. wouldn't it be easy for that to be off putting for a car- a scientist? And we find out later he's like a you know like a fancy fancy school type of rich kid. Yeah, that coming to town and being s- smarter than all the fishermen and stuff would usually be off putting. But he's so like de- delighted by these redneck fishermen <laughs> that it's like he's he's um, we're kind of on his side. I don't know how he does that. 
Yeah, I think that w- one of the things I think that really helps with that is the very next scene where he's examining the remains and you sort of see this facade of confidence crumble there where he's like really shocked by what he's looking at. And yeah, he's like about to puke and it's really hard for him. And we immediately know that he's not just a pencil pusher, like college boy that he does yeah. actually like r- reach into fish and do gross stuff and get <laughs> emotional. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, he's shaky looking at this body or what's left of it. Cause he's like, her torso got torn and torn apart. And like just the description, I mean, talk about uh you know usually you're supposed to do show don't tell they do an amazing job of tell don't show here because yeah because he's just narrating it but he's doing this great thing where he's uh, talking out loud for the autopsy report like on the audio tape he's he's trying to keep it cool but then yeah. to the guys in the room is is like so intense and uh yeah. so can, he, I, can i get some water <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly he's, he's like having a meltdown but he's trying to do his job but uh, yeah. formally at the same time it's a it's a really great scene and he winds up confirming that the death was caused by an unusually large shark or a squalus as he calls it <laughs> and uh he says it's definitely not a propeller Outside, the local fishermen have, in fact, caught a tiger shark, and the mayor proclaims the beaches safe. Hooray! This was apparently a real shark that was killed in Florida, since there wasn't a big enough one in Martha's Vineyard. And um, they... So Carl Gottlieb, who I mentioned as like the writer and every uh, one of the writers, uh, he has this um, behind the scenes thing called the Jaws log that he did. And he said that by the time it got shipped to the set and was prepared for filming, it was like almost completely decomposed inside and the smell was just awful. And so since it was hung from the tail, all of its internal organs broke loose and piled up in the back of its throat. They're just like sitting there trying to work around this just genuinely rotting shark in front of them, which um, sounds like hell. Yeah, that's amazing. This is where we get a little bit more of Miss Kittner. Uh, Again, knocking it out of the park here. She openly blames Brody for her son's death. She's like, you knew you didn't close the beach. This is on you. And she smacks him in the face. And reportedly the uh, she couldn't fake a slap and so it took 17 takes and Roy Scheider was like this is some of the most painful moments of my acting career <laughs> was just getting slapped 17 times in a row for this <laughs> you know truth is pain as as they say so, so he, she was really slapping him but they were just bad slaps so they had to keep going i guess so or, or not nailing the uh, the dialogue after or oh, something yeah. but just per- slapping him and then like purposely blowing the line <laughs> You killed my son, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) Line. Um, But it works, and Brody is feeling really guilty. And Hooper is also disputing that this is the same shark. Uh, He says that its it's mouth diameter or something is not large enough, and he wants to open it up, saying that, like, if this is the same shark, their digestive system is slow. We'll cut it open. Whatever's in there will fall out. And the mayor is like, I don't want this little kid spilling out into the like docks here brutally murdered. And again, you're like, I can kind of understand where he's coming from in terms of like, that would be awful for everyone involved. And Miss Kittner is there. And mm-hmm. like, imagine if she like saw her son, like, just an awful decision to be like, let's open up this fucking shark here on the docks. So it's a, yeah, just a, a lot of great character decisions. And, This is where we get this sort of uh, breath of fresh air, father-son moment scene where he's at dinner that night and his son is imitating him and it's very cute and and I think it's really necessary for this movie to take that moment 
Big time. Without it, way that it presses forward so hard in the second in the second act, or I mean, second half at least, you got to take a moment to to be like, all right, let's establish where we're at how everyone's feeling we get to see that brody is uh, distressed about what's happening here he's messing up his new job it's just a really important and great uh, it's well done as well which is is crucial obviously (laughs) yeah no yeah if you do if you do it poorly it's not that good but no it is and it's like it's funny because it's i i don't know if i was just looking at like a story outline or something i might think it's too like on the nose that you're like well why can't he just sympathize with this this woman's kid died that's sad enough for for a turning point you know you don't necessarily have to be a dad to know that death death is sad but having a little human moment with his own child right there is uh you know what he's thinking the whole scene you know yeah definitely uh hooper comes by to get brody drunk and convince him to open up the shark so is this where hooper would have had an affair with with (laughs) mrs brody (laughs) you have to imagine that this is the scene uh while uh brody's getting drunk there he uh, (laughs) he slips off off, have sex and then he comes right back and they finish up some shark talk This is, again, you talk about sort of these like weird decisions that really work to establish this character. I think another one is where he comes in, he sees their like half-eaten food, and he's like, is anyone going to eat this? And he takes it and he starts eating it. And you're like, oh, he got so absorbed in what he was doing that he lost track of time. And, And like... So much that you get just from that one decision and like his like desperation to like shovel it it's down. It's like a giant plate. It's like the plate you would serve other people dinner from and he just starts like <laughs> diving in. And that's like another, yeah, it's a little quirk of that. I think you're right. It's like he's he's so caught up in his work that he's like overly hungry. But then it also is just like a funny thing I wouldn't expect from the the nerd coming to town that he's also the type yeah. of guy that wants to like shovel <laughs> food in his mouth. <laughs> Yeah, to just yeah to just out and out ask for it was uh, it's definitely shocking and and, uh, pretty funny. But they confirm that it is in fact different when no human remains are found in the shark when they go to open it up. And so they're drunk, they're ready to go out there, they're gonna have a good time. They go out on the water that night. Fuck it, we're gonna find this shark. (laughs) And um, Hooper and Brody instead find a half sunken boat that belongs to Ben Gardner, which I think it's uh, just a fun little tidbit that Ben Gardner is actually the first person that Hooper interacts with when he gets to Amity. So that's oh, a, I was wondering, I, I feel like I, even though I've seen the movie infinity times, I'm like, <laughs> which guy is that? Which guy is Ben Gardner? When we see him at the beginning, is he, he's the one who he's like, he's like, tell those guys that, uh, that like, they're not allowed to like fish over here or whatever. And then he goes over to that group of rednecks and he's like, it's overloaded. That's what he says. He says, tell those guys that they're overloading their boat. Got it. Um, Rip, rip to a real one. Ben Gardner. (laughs) (laughs) He goes down and uh, he finds this great white shark tooth embedded in the hull of the boat. And he's already kind of scared, but he drops it and almost shits himself when the gross bloated head of Ben pops up and surprises him. Spielberg said that in test screenings that this is the one that made him greedy for more scares. He was like, oh, when I heard that scream from everyone freaking out about Gardner popping up, that was it. I knew I had to get some more uh, shark scares in there. But I was uh, that that's a great scare that that bloated head. But then also one time I was watching this movie with my wife and even even before and I know she had seen it before, too, but she's very easily scared. And she before we even got to the bloated head, just like getting close to the boat. Uh, there's like, there's before we see the tooth, there's like bite marks in, in the, in the boat. And I was sitting next to my wife on the, on the couch and she audibly out loud, like muttered under her breath, 
chomp marks. <laughs> <laughs> As in the shark had chomped the boat and left marks. But I was like, that's how locked in uh, you are in a, in a scene like uh, like that. You're, you're just like, you're right there with uh, Hooper and you feel yeah. like you're scuba diving. You're like, oh, what am I? Oh my God, chomp marks. <laughs> yeah, you, you have that same sense of discovery that he does, uh, which is, it's really great. And they, so he drops this shark or the, the tooth and Mayor Vaughn shrugs it off. He's, he's like, if you don't have any proof that there's something else there, uh, I'm not concerned. This is another really great scene where there's like the graffiti on the billboard, which the mayor is more concerned about than the fact that Ben Gardner is out there dead. And Cooper is trying to tell him that it's like a perfect machine that just eats, sleeps, and makes little sharks. And you get this frustration of seeing elected officials ignoring the experts who are telling yeah, them what's and going what, on what, what is more you could, donald trump is the exact guy that would be like do something about that graffiti hey like, <laughs> being more concerned with pr and appearances yeah. than what's really happening exactly yeah it, it's like if you take care of uh, the shark problem i guarantee that you'll stop getting uh help shark graffiti drawn on your billboard <laughs> yeah. guys yeah i know that's the way to solve the problem <laughs> but yeah they he wants to he wants to put a band-aid on it and he says do what you want to make it safer but those beaches will be open and Fourth of July weekend rolls around, and that's exactly what happens. The beach opens as planned, packed with tourists. But one thing I really like is nobody's in the water right away. That I, I like that there is sort of this trepidation where the mayor has to like come over and like hiss at his buddy to be like, "Hey, man, yeah, get the fuck in the water." Go swim. Everyone's just like waiting to see who's going to be first. It's great. People start going in eventually, but then there's this prank where uh, two real stinkers pretend to be a shark. I love and, uh, it. Quite a quite the intense prank that they pull on uh, on everyone, but it, it's such a, a fun moment of like dread and relief when they pop up and uh, they're like the guns are all pointed at them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like he made me do it. Very Spielbergy. Like doesn't that, that feels like a little glimpse into like Goonies type of stuff that comes later? Little scamps. Yeah, but scamps indeed, and. In the panic, nobody notices the real shark going into an estuary a little further down the beach, where it kills a boater and sends Brody's son Michael into shock. This is the moment now where Brody is able to convince Vaughn to hire Quinn, especially now that Vaughn is a little shook up because he's like, oh, my son was on that beach too. Of course, now that it's finally a little personal for Vaughn, he's he's willing to make the, the sacrifice here, but... He's he's shook up and uh, he agrees to hire Quint. And uh, I looked up the inflation. Ten k is about fifty thousand dollars now, which I think is pretty pretty reasonable for taking care of this whole problem. But yeah, uh, yeah. you know, what are you gonna do? Quint, Brody, and Hooper set out on Quint's boat, the Orca, to to hunt the shark. And there's this great tension between all of them that sort of comes from this feeling that each of them has a claim to being in charge. I mean, obviously, Quint is the captain of his boat, but Brody is the police chief, who is the sort of liaison uh, and the, I guess, client, the one who's hired Quint here. And Hooper feels that since he's the expert on sharks, that he should be the one who has uh, a lot of say in everything. And there's this really great dynamic that's established almost immediately between the three of them. Ultimately, though, Quint, he rules that boat with an iron fist. He's not going to take anyone's guff there. And uh, I laugh really hard when Quint, like, pounds his Narragansett and crushes it, and then Hooper does the same thing with his yep. little plastic cup there. It's great. It is great. And Brody is out there laying down a chum line when Bruce appears without warning behind the, the boat. And, I mean, this is 
Talk about your iconic scenes, man. This is so great. He's looking the other way. He's got his little cigarette dangling out of his mouth. And you know, you get the classic line, you're going to need a bigger boat. I mean, just so much about this scene is just working at full power. Uh, it's it's just great stuff. I wonder that. So that that's like the big line and it is like paced out. And and, and, and I love it. Uh, but I'm, I was wondering just in the same way that seeing the, the, the drowned guy's head was a big like scream in the audience. I wonder if in 1975, when, when audiences watching this movie, we're gonna get. It. We're gonna need a bigger boat. Must have been like a rolling in the aisles laughter type of thing. Right? It is. It <laughs> yeah. is definitely paced out like. Uh, like yeah, it's a it's a joke for yeah, sure. Here's a big hard joke. They so what they actually did was they paced it out. They like added a little more footage because people were so scared from the shark jumping up that their screams were over. Like they were taught, they were screaming over the joke. Oh really? Oh damn. Yeah. So they added a little more footage there so that you could get this great line, which uh, I thought was interesting. That's funny. Quint estimates this thing's length at 25 feet and three tons. Uh, Nothing to scoff at, indeed. And he harpoons it with a line attached to these flotation barrels, but the shark is able to pull the barrel underwater and disappear. So you get a nice little glimpse of, of what this guy is capable of in terms of now that they're trapped out there with it, it's a great sort of establishing of stakes and the abilities of this shark. Just a great character moment for him. Yep. That night, they start to s- sort of get along finally when Quint and Hooper start drunkenly exchanging stories about their assorted scars. And I noticed it for the first time last time I watched this movie. But when Brody, like, pulls up his shirt and just, like, looks at his own little, like, dinky scar mm-hmm. on his stomach, he's, he, like, doesn't say anything about it. But I, it, like, really makes me laugh. And he's, like, not, yeah, not even willing to, to take the <laughs> stage there. He's just like, mm. yeah. Especially because it's, like, uh, so in, in reality, that was his, uh, like, append, uh, appendectomy scar. Mm-hmm. And so, like, what does he even say to the other guys who are, like, I got bit like by a moray eel on my own and like yeah. all this crazy stuff. And he's just like, I had an appendectomy one time. <laughs> I'm, I'm a wimp. <laughs> but um, they are, they're starting to get along there and things start to take a darker turn when Quint reveals that uh, his backstory here, we get this great reveal of him being a survivor of the USS Indianapolis. And this monologue that he gives Robert Shaw just absolutely knocks it out of the park it's got this like slow zoom in on him and he just you're just wrapped and it's like we also we we did the slow zoom in with him earlier in the movie when we when we met him so you think it would be like a big a bit much (laughs) this guy like imagine opening up that script and just being like oh i get these big long monologues that i can sink my teeth into we're so used to movies having these moments and they and they don't land and you don't yeah. care so it is so fun to just watch someone knocking out of the park and the whole thing does work so much better coming off of such a silly conversation i mean like hearing about the indianapolis would be like you know a sad story and everything but it always strikes me as so fun that like Hooper is making Quint laugh when they're talking about the scars, and I, and I love seeing them bond because I don't think I expect that. I don't. I, I I could see them being okay with Quint, but I, I would assume that a Quint type character will just hate Hooper all the way through the movie. So the fact that once sure. they're drunk, 
they're both they're making each other laugh and when quint is la- <laughs> like laughing at hooper's joke and looking over to brody as like that was a funny joke <laughs> then the, like the last thing you're expecting in that moment is to go super super sad and dark yeah absolutely and i, I mean the shift is very quick too where like you can like see the pain on quint's face and i, I mean i am inclined to think that this has something to do with his uh, history in actual theater in terms of like sort of being able to have that over the top, but still realistic communication with his face that like makes it work. It's, it's able to communicate, but not feel over the top, even though it is demonstrative. Cause it would be tempting if you were an actor, if you got that monologue and you wanted to win an Oscar, you might, Go especially if you're coming from stage acting where everything is a little bit more dramatized. Yeah, I could I, I could imagine giving in and just like overdoing it, but he's he's talking quiet. He tells the whole thing real small and just lets the words be scary. We also get a quick shift away from it too, where they start singing uh, "Show Me the Way to Go Home," which I absolutely love. Yeah. This scene of them singing there together, and they're interrupted by the shark returning unexpectedly, ramming the boat's hull, which disables the power. And again, I really love this characterization of Quint, where he seems to like take it very personally that the shark damaged his boat, yeah. and he just goes out there and starts shooting at it instead of doing anything that would actually be helpful based on what they've talked about. <laughs> Yeah, it is funny. It's like, yeah, his wisdom is just right out the window there. He's like, hey, hit my boat. (laughs) And they work through the night repairing the engine. And Brody tries to call the Coast Guard in the morning. But Quint, this obsession has sort of taken over him, uh, much in the way that the Ahab comparison with Moby Dick would have been made if that initial scene had been in there. Where he's, he's obsessed, and so when Brody tries to call the Coast Guard, Quint takes a baseball bat to the radio. Uh, he just goes off the deep end and just wallops it. <laughs> and they have another long chase with the, with the boat. Quint harpoons another barrel into it, and the shark man- is so strong that he manages to pull the boat backwards, which po- swamps the deck and floods the engine compartment because it's still open. Just the boat is falling apart here. Quint is like ready to sever the line to stop the transom from being pulled out, but the cleat breaks off. And so they manage to keep the barrels attached to the shark. And he's like, all right, now's our chance. We're going to start drawing it towards shallower water. We're going to start heading in. But he pushes the damaged engines past the safety limits and the engine fails again. And I really like this. I mean, it's, it's, been sort of demonstrated throughout the whole thing but this idea of quint kind of refusing to do what he's told in this fiercely independent streak that he clearly has he's like oh you can't like you can't tell me what to do on my own boat like this is this is me i am it this is our life together and like just when the it's so it's common sense to do what they say when they're like hey you literally can't do that you're gonna destroy the boat and that's exactly what happens that self-destructive streak i think is really interesting it's a really it's a cool character thing yeah he's kind of like passing the point of no return like losing a little bit of logic absolutely and the orca is slowly sinking and uh the trio basically are like all right we have to make moves here and so hooper puts on a scuba suit and he enters the water in this shark proof cage and he's gonna inject it with uh some something to like he's got to stab it in to its mouth he's got to get real close to it because the hide is too thick otherwise and again another really great hooper moment where he's he has this classic i got no spit line i, I think that's really great another uh, cool character <laughs> no moment spit. 
And uh, the, so the shark attacks the cage when he's down there, which makes which makes Hooper drop the spear. So their last sort of effort here, gone with the wind, it sinks and is lost. And the shark is like tearing this cage apart, this anti anti shark cage, totally ineffective. And uh, Hooper does manage to escape to this like to the seabed, but the shark is going nuts and. It, like, escapes and leaps onto the boat. This <laughs> thing fucking jumps out of the water, gets on there, drags Quint down, and devours him. I mean, you can still see a lot of Ahab in Quint, but there was going to be even more, where in, in addition to seeing him at Moby Dick, originally he was going to get the line wrapped around his leg and drown like Ahab would have. Mm. But they landed on the actually getting eaten ending because they were like, well, after we come up with this Indianapolis backstory, it'll be much more tragic for him to actually finally get eaten. The shark finally (laughs) caught up with him. And uh, I I agree with that. Do you like that they wound up going with the shark finally being the one to take him down? Or would you have liked more of that sort of Moby Dick illusion? I like uh, I like how it plays out, and uh, and it's 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 fitting for him to being the man of the sea to be getting devoured by the shark. It seems like it's the way that he would want to go out, even though it's like you know since the Indi- Indianapolis, he's been managing to avoid getting eaten by a shark. <laughs> so it's like sad to see his life come full circle. But but it is kind of what I, like I do on this viewing of the movie. I do kind of wonder if at this point we're just sort of like coming up with a cool ending and maybe losing a little bit of track of like what we're. <laughs> what the underlying like meaning is behind things because if you're yeah. if you're thinking of it's like uh, Quint is is the guy that understands nature and is in the man man of the sea Hooper is like the academic and then like we're building toward this moment of Brody being the one to save the day and I wonder it's like are we doing that for any reason other than just like he's the ma- he's the protagonist so he yeah. gets gets to win but. He's the one that Spielberg sees himself in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so that's, that's the winner. But I mean, like, if I'm writing it, I'm thinking, like, maybe that injection that Hooper, when Hooper goes to get in the in the cage and he, like, tries to inject the, the, the shark, in real life, you'd probably be like, well, that's the scientist and that's the best <laughs> means and that yeah. should, should work. There's really no reason to have, like, his cage crumble and he drops... <laughs> He drops the needle and it's like, nice try, science. You, you need the tough guys to handle this one. Which is <laughs> uh, like, uh, uh. I, but I do think that's, you know, means it's 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 not a novel and it's not an academic paper or something. It's like, <laughs> it's a summer blockbuster and right. we're just trying to deliver the most like fun ending that we can. Hell yeah. You know what? Sometimes that's all you need. Yeah, baby. And uh, that's exactly what happens. Brody is, so Brody is, he's trapped on this sinking boat by himself now. And it took 75 takes to get this shot of him on this boat correct. And while he's trapped down there, Scheider said that he didn't trust the effects team to rescue him in case of an emergency. So he literally just in the all around the room hid axes and hatchets. He was like in every inch of that cabin. I was stashing weapons. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, Scheider was going nuts down there. But uh He's trapped on this boat and he jams a pressurized scuba tube into the uh, or a scuba tank into the shark's mouth and he climbs the crow's nest and we get the wonderful line smile you son of a bitch and he shoots the tank with Quinn's rifle and the shark explodes and hallelujah everyone <laughs> gets to come out a winner except Quint. <laughs> Is this when did Dirty Harry come out? Before this, or you gotta be it must yeah. Be before you. Oh, it was before this because um, the guy who 
worked on Dirty Harry also helped with some of the dialogue contributions oh, to this. Well, you he must, I mean, come on. That uh yeah. that that line <laughs> has to have been written by the same person that wrote Go Ahead Make My Day. A little yeah. silence before a big gunshot. Milius, I think his name is. Oh, um, oh the, but, the man himself. Yeah, there you go. So, um yeah, Hooper surfaces. He, he swims back up. I guess he heard the explosion from all the way down there. And uh, him and Brody paddle back to Amity Island, clinging the remaining barrels. And it's really great. Uh, I, th- I think it's a very satisfying ending. I don't think that they could have had all three of them make it back. And had it have been, like, the stakes established properly and everything. I, I think that they... They really do a great job. Sad to see Quint go, but uh, <laughs> but you got to kill somebody. It, 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 yeah, you got to kill somebody, and it should be Quint. It's and so it feels like a gift that it does feel like the thing to do would be to have only Brody returning by himself. So I like that Hooper's with him because it is like this cute friendship thing that just kind of yeah. cropped up in this movie. I didn't really think that that would happen, and then they're coming back, and it's just like, hey, they're bu- <laughs> they're buddies now. The movie kind of ends abruptly there because don't you feel like we should have like the Ewok party being like, yay, everything <laughs> like, we, like, uh, let's celebrate what we did. And it just kind of goes out. It's, it's yeah. a little bittersweet. I was reading that originally the idea was for there to be a bunch of shark fins that pop up around no. them. Yeah. Which man, oh man, that would have been a very different movie. <laughs> Weird. It so doesn't feel like that type of a thing to be like, yeah, doom and doom. I'm glad that they didn't go with that. You need that kind of lighthearted moment to kind of cap it off and, yeah. and feel like they accomplished something. So I, I, I think it really works. And, uh, and now Tim, we've reached the part of the show where we summarize why this is in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And uh, I'll, I'll let you start us off here. Well, I think if you're, you're picking something that's the best of a genre, it's got to be that it's often imitated. And this, the pacing of this movie, the doling out of the shark scenes is like, yeah, we all know like, like this, this is a thing that uh, started a whole genre and not showing the scary shark as much as uh, hinting at it is like this iconic thing. But watching the movie now, I am also just like, I think that for me, I've got a stumbling block with horror where I personally don't believe in anything supernatural. And I'm I'm, I'm not religious yeah, and, I, and I'm not into, I don't believe in ghosts or I wish I did. It'd be fun, but I don't, I don't <laughs> believe in anything. So I always personally have this moment where like, I feel left out when I'm like watching something with my friends where like I'm on board for spook city and and, and something's hey the family moves into a house in the neighborhood and something's a little weird about this house and like think and i can go along for that ride but then when we kind of get to act three when the secret is out of the bag that is when i'm always lost even in great great movies have you done um like hereditary on here yeah i love that movie and and it's like beautifully directed and and, and it's and it's so freaking everything but i don't really believe in like a prince from hell <laughs> i i totally agree I, I honestly this has come up before a few times where like part of the reason why i tend to gravitate towards slashers is sure. because i'm the same way i don't believe in ghosts or anything but I believe in a guy going crazy. A and guy with a, a bunch knife. Of people. It's, that happens. <laughs> that that absolutely yeah. happens. And I think so. I think it's just an extension of that. Like I agree. I, I'm I'm more scared of like a, a guy with a chainsaw than I am of a mama having like uh, <laughs> long tree arms. Though that I did love that movie as well. But by the end, it lost me. 
But I, so I was thinking like in the slasher type of genre, that is believable to me. And a shark is like that. Like shark, sharks, yeah. they do, I, I'm having fun thinking that there are sharks in waters. I've never seen a shark, but like I know they're out there and I've been on those same beaches from this uh, movie. I, I, I went to Martha's Vineyard and have been in a lot of these lo- locations and oh, wow. uh, it does make it all like feel very real to you. So I think that's the thing that's fun to me is like, the moment when the three of them get on that boat and go out into the ocean is pretty much because we have all the information almost there. We don't maybe know like its exact size, but we haven't seen it yet, but we know that it's a big, bad white, uh, great white. That's like the very moment where most horror movies are losing me is the moment where this one is taken off. And that's why it's my fave. Hell yeah. I I agree. I think that this is the best horror movie ever made because. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, <laughs> to me, it. I mean, first of all, the performances are just top notch. The fact that we already talked about how Robert Shaw, these monologues are things that could have been terrible so easily. Mm-hmm. Someone who just hams it up and is way over the top would have made those unwatchable. And we get these great character moments from Hooper, and we see Brody being this like great father, mo- uh, like those great father moments. Every actor is bringing their all to this performance and the fact that you get this great script that was sort of improvised on set just to make do with what they were able to accomplish that all of that led to this movie being so incredible it's it's remarkable i think that the fact that it took this movie this long to show up on this podcast is frankly incredible to me because this it's such a powerful piece of cinema it's so often imitated like you said it's hard to imagine a time before it Mm -hmm. it just feels like it always existed and for something to be that big of a cultural touchstone and still be effective as a genre piece to me that's why it's the best horror movie ever made Tim, I want to thank you so much for coming on, man. This was My so pleasure. much fun. What a blast. And you, uh, like I said, you gave me an excuse to rewatch this great movie. I loved it. Hell yeah. My wife was like, what? You're watching Jaws? And I was like, um, honey, I have to for a podcast. <laughs> it's homework. Yeah, it's homework. So I loved it. Why don't you tell the people where they can find you? Tell them about the, the new album, which I absolutely loved. Oh, thanks. I just noticed you got that Sloppy Boys poster over your shoulder there. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I love those Philly shows were a blast. It's such like a fun, fun town to play. And everybody uh, yeah. knows the lyrics and is partying hard. It's a blast. Hell yeah. Um, sloppy boys. Yeah. We're, we're, uh, it's me and the Mike and Jeff are my friends from our sketch group, the birthday boys. And then we started this party rock band and we put out three albums like real fast in three years. This new one is called Paradiso, the third of a trilogy. And it's on Spotify, Apple music, everywhere you uh, stream music. It's out there and it's, uh, it's kind of just a summary, you know, goes well with Jaws. Hell Put yeah. Put Jaws on, turn the volume <laughs> off, and then see if Paradiso uh, syncs up. Yeah, turn Quinn into the Master Bong Ripper. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, you know that we did that on purpose, much like Wizard of Oz and Pink Floyd. We did the whole Exactly, thing. yeah, totally, uh, totally on purpose. And uh, I'm sure that that will be a great way to experience both the album and the movie. <laughs> yeah, baby, how it's meant to be. That's what Spielberg meant for it, too, I'm sure. <laughs> He knew. He knew all those years ago. Well, yes, I definitely endorse people going and checking out the Sloppy Boys albums. All three are fantastic. And like you said, the Philly shows are great. So next time quarantine is over and the shows are happening again, I definitely encourage people to go and uh, get out to a live show because the energy is 
absolutely insane. I don't know how you guys didn't have a heart attack in the Philomoka one where it was like a billion degrees. Oh my God. Hottest, (laughs) maybe most fun show ever in the hottest, hottest room I've ever been in. Yeah, it was, it was wild. Yeah. So go check that out. As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. You can go to the website, LittleHorrorPHL, if you feel like not listening to the podcast on all the major podcast platforms for some reason. And uh, that also has links to like merch and all the social stuff. So basically you can find whatever you need on littlehorrorphl.com and also leave us a rating and a review if you would be so kind because it helps. That's it for me. Thanks again, Tim. This was great. Thank and you. Uh, have a good one, everyone. Bye. <laughs>